and welcome. I'm Sophie Kilvert and I'm a client advisor in the UK wealth management business of Rothschild & Co. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Gilmore, the head of research of Albizia Capital. Now, as you know, as well as holding company shares directly, which are researched and monitored by our own investment team, we also hold a number of funds in our portfolios. Now, when we're investing in these funds, we're looking for strategies that can deliver returns that will beat inflation, but also that offer some diversification from what we can do ourselves. And Arbizia certainly provides that. Now, it's a fund. It's based in Singapore and focuses on Southeast Asia. At Rothschilds & Co., we've held them in our portfolio since late 2014. And actually, Michael, you joined the firm in 2014 as well. What was it about the company that attracted you? Thanks. Uh, it was, well, I, I don't think I've known a fund longer than Albizia, or at least the, the fund manager. Uh, Justin Xiao, who set up the fund in uh, 2009, so the end of last year was the, the first fund's 10th anniversary. He and I, have, I think, have known each other at least since 1999-2000. Uh, uh, I've been uh, on the sell side as a consumer sector analyst for uh, UBS and Nomura since 1999. And Justin had been on the buy side with a, a firm called Ariseg Partners since 1999-2000 as a consumer sector analyst and fund manager for them looking at the whole of Asia, but also then as the, uh, as the head of of ASEAN as well. And so he and I have interacted uh, for 10 years before we actually started working together. So it was a very easy decision from a, from a working relationship perspective. But from a, a sort of an actual strategic standpoint, the Southeast Asian consumer was something that once, once one gets inside it, there's a, a realization this is a, a very special sector that you know, ASEAN is, is really incredibly diverse, more so than probably any other part of the world uh, in terms of income, cultures, and, and many other aspects. And that creates, for a consumer analyst, it creates lots of, lots of S-curves, lots of adoption speeds, lots of different consumer sectors that you can look at and to, to find good entrepreneurs in that sector. So, so when Justin actually started his fund as, as a very small fund, uh, we, were, we were already friends and talked regularly. And when the fund became big enough for, for him to take someone like me on, um, to take on another partner, then uh, I, I joined as quickly as I could. Jumped at the chance. So what is it that you and, and Justin look for? Uh, a, in particular regions that, that you look at firstly, and, and also in, in, the, in the companies that you're looking to invest in. What is it that attracts you to them? Yeah, so what we try and find, uh, we're very much bottom up. So we really start with your, your second question. Uh, we do start with the companies and we start with the entrepreneurs themselves. Uh, there are lots of great consumer opportunities and consumer sectors in Southeast Asia, but if they don't have a good entrepreneur in them, we don't want to invest in an okay company in a great sector because nothing attracts a really good, you know, good entrepreneur like a great sector with that, without good entrepreneurs in it. So we, we look for those good entrepreneurs first, and that's a really – crucial part of our, our investment case is to find the people driving driving the business. The uh, Part of that comes from having been doing it so long. I started first in, in 98 in Indonesia, uh, Justin, as I said, in 99. So we have a very extensive network across Southeast Asia of the people working in the sector. So we, we plug into that all the time and to, to see where there are interesting new businesses coming up where there are, where there are new growth sectors. 
And so that's, that's really the fundamental part of that. If we think about the, the sectors we look at, then we define consumer broadly. Uh, and by that, I mean we don't use the, you know, the MSCI definition of consumer, who would include things like plantations and casinos and tobacco in there, which we don't include in there for a, for a number of different reasons. But we do incorporate things like tourism and media and insurance and healthcare and education, where we believe that what the, the entrepreneur is doing is creating a, a consumer product, a consumer service. And so, therefore, that the way that the, the entrepreneur understands the customer creates an advantage in his business against all the other competition. And so that's how we define our, our sector. And then as a region, we take ASEAN, the, the political grouping, um, for, for the ease of use that it is a political grouping, but also we think that ASEAN tends to be ignored. You've got the big markets of China and India you know, to the north and, and west of us. And so we've got a lot of complex markets here in Southeast Asia with a lot of growth uh, and, and actually big markets. There are 700 million people in, in ASEAN, uh, uh, 250 million of them in, in Indonesia alone. And so they are big markets and they can handle big and fast-growing companies that can scale so they're interesting, but they tend to be ignored because of the monolithic markets that are elsewhere in, in Asia. And so that is our focus, and we, we avoid those other markets because as a distraction, we think they would be too big a distraction, and we focus here on the, on the complexities and all the various different niche opportunities that Southeast Asia presents. And are there particular challenges with doing that investment in ASEAN? Obviously, a lot of people listening will be much more familiar with, with Western markets, Europe, the US, and, and, and the UK. Um, are there challenges that you face in the region that you're investing in um, that we might not be quite so familiar with? Yes, uh, I think it's a very good question um, because I think one of the things that probably is is most keen to understand is the difficulties that our companies face doing business here. Uh, the, in some markets, the very, very low levels of infrastructure. The, we, we often use a term of general trade or traditional retail uh, to describe some of what goes on in Southeast Asia, but that's often just a, a hole in the wall or a, a little shack uh, where someone is, is selling very, very few basic items. Now, in a, a market like Indonesia, there can be two million points of sale just like that. And we are investing normally in, the, in the, the modern retail category, which is slowly taking that over and, and building out and moving into the space that, that that vacates. But that exists, that traditional retail business exists. It exists still as an opportunity set for some of our suppliers, the, the dairy companies and the bakery companies that, that supply into that. Uh, but to get to those points of sale can be very hard when you've got uh, well, Indonesia and Philippines between them have uh, somewhere in the region of 22,000, 23,000 islands uh, and very little road infrastructure on the islands that are there. Um, that is an incredible obstacle to do business. And one of the things that we view as when we find a good entrepreneur, we look at someone who has probably had to struggle to build their business uh, to the scale that they've already built it. And that struggle becomes a moat of itself, that they have been able to do business in a place that, that others aren't. And I would say that that is probably the, the first level of understanding of how different things are. 
here versus, say, in Europe or the U.S., where very often, you know, these days the, the speed with which an idea can come to market and become a, become a business is, is so quick. Uh, in Indonesia, we look at businesses that, you know, might take 10, 20 years to replicate someone else's distribution network. And that's certainly one of the things that attracted us to, to what you do, um, to the extent that when we invest in funds, we view you almost as an extension of our own research capabilities. And, and while our investment team have spent time with you out there, it's not something that we could do on a regular basis. So when we partner with funds, we want that honest and open relationship and transparency with you. Is that a common model for how you work with your clients? Is it important to you to find those partnerships? We're always very happy when someone takes as much interest in us as, as your team has and does. Uh, we you know, more than happy to always share information. Not all our investors do, uh, and it's rare for us to, to get to spend, say, a week with an investor as we did with, with some of your team in Indonesia a couple of years ago, and I think almost a week we spent with, with another couple of your managers in the Philippines, not last year, the year before. Uh, it's wonderful to do that and to, to show them uh, the businesses we invest in to show them the grassroots. Uh, I believe one of your teams, we took them out to a traditional market really way outside Jakarta and then sort of built in stages so they could see exactly the process we do when we're investing. Uh, but also, you know, we're in the Philippines with your fund managers, introducing them to the, to the owners of the businesses themselves uh, and able to get that strategic view from, from the very top and how – as, as is often the case in Southeast Asia, these are, these are companies owned by families uh, and the people running the business today will intend to pass that business on to their family over time. Uh, and to see the perspective that that gives the business and to, it was a great opportunity to introduce your, your managers to, to those owners so they could see the kinds of conversations we have with them when we're discussing their strategic plans. And how many businesses do you, how many companies do you typically hold in, in the portfolio? Across the two portfolios, we're invested in about 35 main companies. Uh, there are, we always have a few at any given time that we are, are building uh, to, to slowly increase those positions. But it'd be the 35 main portfolio companies that uh, we have at the moment. But we have a, a, a sort of a universe that is at least double that size of companies that we are looking at regularly as competition uh, to have a place in the portfolio. And then another set that would be nearer 200 companies that we are in regular contact with to really understand the region. But it's, it's 35 that we consider as the, the core of the portfolios. And I wonder if we could possibly delve down in, into one or two of them and, and see if we can reveal some stories or at least understand how, how you do some of the research into particular companies. So one of your largest holdings, I, I think, is, is Philippine 7. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. That's, so this is the 7-Eleven network for the Philippines. So they're a, a franchisee of, of the 7-and-I from Japan. And, and it's a business that's been in the same family hands for 20-plus years, although about 15 years ago, the, the Taiwanese franchisees, franchisors rather, of, of 7-Eleven uh, called President Chain Stores were brought in uh, as shareholders as well. So they're now the largest shareholding group. This is a business that, that Justin, our, our founder and CEO, has known a lot longer than I have through his uh, earlier connections. 
and stayed close to the company even though there were many times no opportunity to buy the shares. The shares were so tightly held by the family and president chain stores that there were very, very few opportunities to actually own a position. But Justin maintained the relationship because that's how we view what we do with Southeast Asian companies. The good companies, we believe there will be an opportunity to acquire at some point. We want them to know that we, are, we view ourselves as long-term capital and, and to be long-term partners with them. And so Justin maintained that relationship, for, I think, for at least four or five years before eventually getting a call saying there was a block available from the family. And because of the relationship he built, he became that first call. They wanted him uh, to be a partner and wanted Albizia Capital to be a partner in that business. Uh, as we st as we still are today. So part of that relationship is not just about information and, and, and knowing more about companies. It is about having that relationship. So Philippine 7 has grown over the time we've owned it from about 1,200 stores across the whole of the Philippines to today. I think it will be pushing this year, getting close to about 3,000 stores, obviously for various – well, for one very specific reason, the, the number of stores that get opened this year might be lower than – than expected. But if we push back just to last year, uh, the pace of store growth were, was accelerating. By uh, nine months, uh, 2019, the company was, was reporting earnings growth in excess of, of 50%. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for, for this, but essentially the Philippines 7-Eleven store is becoming the central focus of, of areas of sort of small residential areas or office areas or, or working areas in the whole of the Philippines. And they, they tr take this very serious, seriously and try to make sure they're constantly adding on new items, new services that people in those areas want. And, and a good example of that came last year uh, when they started selling freshly fried chicken in, in their stores. Now, this is not a small thing because to do that, they needed to set up satellite chick uh, kitchens rather that could serve you know, about 50 stores each. Now, They've rolled out more than 25 of those in the space of, of 12 months so that they could hit more than 1,000 stores selling that product. The reason this is such a hit product, well, one, Southeast Asia is always a fried chicken market. The, the global uh, burger chains that come to Southeast Asia may try and come with beef burgers, but they always move back to, to selling fried chicken very closely. That's the key product. We estimate that the two main chains in Philippines – which are McDonald's and the local chain, Jollibee, probably have about a billion dollars in revenue of just fried chicken alone a year. And 7-Eleven saw this as something to move into, but they would need this satellite kitchens to do it. We, we met them on a number of occasions talking about this, how they were rolling these stores out, visited a satellite kitchen itself to see how operations ran and how quickly they were delivering into the store networks. And one of the things that we picked up from them and one of the satellite kitchen operators as the manager of it, saying their peak time is around about midnight to 4 o'clock in the morning, which one might assume with a sort of more Western head on that this is a product that people are going buying on their way home from a night out. But actually what this is is, is the workers at what are called BPOs or business processing outsourcing offices or actually call centers. So the people that are answering the phones in the Philippines, often to the U.S., but also into the U.K., work some very strange times. And when they come out of those offices, they want to pick up a snack. And if it can be hot and freshly cooked, 
then it's a far more preferable snack than to, to cracking open a pack of potato crisps or, or a sandwich. And this is why that became such a hit product in, in the last 12 months, is because when they come out of those, those offices, it's really only the 7-Eleven that's open. The restaurants are closing. Typical um, uh, fast food chains are closing. But the 7-Eleven stays open and was delivering a product that they really wanted. So in very, very short space of time, this moved from being nothing to, to 5% of sales. But it's still only a fraction of the amount of money that McDonald's and Jollibee is generating in the sector. And so that's where we see this needs a number of things. It needs a high level of customer sensitivity to understand your customer. It needs a very high degree of efficiency to be able to roll out effectively those, those satellite kitchens, and really just an innovation to know that this is something you can do uh, and to take it on. And we see all of that within Philippine 7 and talk to them regularly to, to see how they're progressing on, on all of those, those areas. Be before I leave Philippine 7, I think also worth mentioning that obviously when anyone goes to buy a product in a convenience store, it's very rare to come out with just the product you go in for. So you go in for fried chicken, you're very likely coming out with fried chicken, a drink, quite possibly some tissues to clean up after the fried chicken, but also services. One of the biggest service things in, in the Philippines now is putting more money into your prepaid mobile phone account or into your prepaid e-wallet. And Philippines 7, because of their, the number of them that there are, but the proximity and the, and the use case that customers have to go into a Philippines 7, they're now about 75 to 80% market share of all top-ups on phones and e-commerce wallets in the Philippines, which really shows the strength that they've created. Uh, to come back a, a, a step, this is, however, still a very early stage of this company's growth. If we look to Thailand, which about 10 years ago had the same number of stores that Philippine 7 has today, uh, Thailand now has about 13,000 7-Elevens. Uh, in a country with a smaller population than the Philippines. So while we can't say it will be exactly like for like, we definitely know there's a huge potential for actual just network expansion rather than just the continuation of, of adding extra products. I think it's very interesting that a lot of what we've seen in, in developing countries, you touched there on um, on the use of technology and how people go in to top up their mobile phones and their e-wallets and, and how people are, are engaging, particularly in Southeast Asia, with technology and with e-commerce. Um, I think that the next company that I thought it might be interesting to look at is Viettel Post, which I think is a, a courier service in, in Vietnam, um, which does focus on that on that e-commerce area, which is which is really growing. Yes, it, it, it's growing very quickly. We, if we just look at the the broad numbers, it's it's a startup sector, e-commerce in in Vietnam. At the moment, the average Vietnamese person receives three or less parcels per year, which when we compare that to just Thailand is now above six with e-commerce still at early stages. If we compare it to China, China's pushing towards 40 or 50 parcels per person per year. So the acceleration of that sector is, is very strong. And so it's, it's at its early stages. What's interesting as well about Vietnam is that it's not – been like many of the other Asian markets for e-commerce where there have been very dominant e-commerce players that have quickly established a, either monopoly, duopoly of, of the, the front end and, and being the e-commerce sites. Much of what goes on in Vietnam is actually 
more C2C or peer-to-peer e-commerce with small sellers selling to to other buyers. Uh, And the nature of that really is advantageous to to Viettel Post because their their network is so extensive. They have about uh, 6,000 offices across the country and uh, 17,000 delivery staff. So they've really already got the backbone built that can enable that peer-to-peer business to to be to be run, and they're the, really the only people that can do that in the market. Anyone else coming into the market to focus on that more typical hub-spoke delivery pattern of the e-commerce players will only be capturing a very small percentage of the market because the nature of the peer-to-peer in, in Vietnam is so high. But it's something, obviously, we look extensively at e-commerce in every market across Southeast Asia from, from two perspectives, one to see where we think there's potential for investing in an e-commerce player, but also to see where it's a threat to existing business models, whether we need to worry about a business model because e-commerce is growing very quickly, or whether we can invest in the the ancillary businesses like uh, the courier side of things, as we've as we found in Vietnam, where we think that that will capture actually so much of the growth that will drive as, as we see e-commerce pick up in that market. And I think one of the things that we, we can't avoid talking about, which also touches on, on e-commerce really at the moment, is is how the coronavirus, how COVID-19 has changed people's attitudes to, to maybe online shopping versus uh, actually physically shopping. And can we talk a little bit about how it's affected the ASEAN region as a whole? Obviously, there's a lot of countries in there and it's affected them all differently. Yes. Yeah, that, it's obviously affected all of us differently. Um, across the whole world as, as, uh, as it arrived at different times and also seems to, to grow at different speeds in different places. And governments have, have different reactions as well. So uh, sitting here in Singapore, we were one of the first places to, to acknowledge that, that coronavirus had arrived uh, and test for it. And Singapore took a, a, a gentle approach, but really trying to, to track arrivals and track contacts of everyone, which seemed to work until about three or four weeks ago, uh, when effectively Singapore was hit with about the third or fourth wave of arrivals of of coronavirus. And and coronavirus started to spread more deeply, particularly into into migrant worker communities in in Singapore. Uh, And that's why Singapore moved into what they're calling a circuit breaker, but is, is really very close to a full lockdown a little bit later than other places in Southeast Asia. Uh, the places that went first on, on a full lockdown were, were Manila and Luzon in the Philippines, uh, which has now been in lockdown for probably more like three weeks or four weeks, and um, Malaysia, which also followed very quickly into, into full lockdown as well for the whole country, to the extent where people can't travel across um, the lines of the different um, provinces of Malaysia. And, and there are roadblocks regularly questioning people as to, to why they're on the road and whether they are, are signed off essential service. That was followed much later in places like Vietnam, where lockdown really only came into place about two weeks ago. And in Indonesia, where the lockdown came again two weeks ago, but seems to be more partial in nature. But that might just be because of the really the, the difficulty of actually imposing a lockdown into a country as densely populated and with low infrastructure as as Indonesia. So that's been the the effect. I think from a from a perspective in Singapore uh, and also from a company that 
obviously we speak to a lot of supermarket companies and, and supply chain companies. Uh, it's been really um, enlightening to see the, the depth to which they have the supply chain sorted out. We've really not seen a single company discuss a, a broken supply chain. Um, even the companies that were bringing imports in from China were able to do so through the whole period when China was in lockdown, or they had enough inventory to see them through to the point uh, when China started delivering again. And so that supply chain has been fine. Even Singapore, where everything really is imported, um, the supermarket businesses, the food businesses, the supply chains are still working very effectively, and there seems to be no breakdown at all in the supply chains at this stage, which it's now been here for quite a while, so we should be seeing signs of stress by now. So those supply chains do seem to be working fully. And in terms of the companies that you hold in the portfolio, how have they reacted? Did you have, did you have any particularly vulnerable ones that, that you were concerned about? We do, um, and we, we have been reducing where we don't see a good outcome uh, for those companies. If we look across the, the two portfolios, one of them is actually significantly more than 50% in more staple uh, and so food, beverage, uh, and essential services types of companies. So really the what we'd expect to see is, is a, a shallower uh, crisis for those companies, uh, if, if at all. We have seen some companies that have been reporting positive like-for-like. So uh, one company we're invested in in Vietnam is a company called Masan Consumer. They make instant noodles, uh, which... Normally, their distributors have a month on the shelves, but their, the, their factories are now running three shifts full capacity, and their distributors barely have a day or two on the shelves. So they're going full pace. They'd also, just towards the end of last year, bought a, a detergent company, which they, at the arrival of COVID-19, immediately transferred into a, into a hand sanitizer company. And again, they haven't been able to make product fast enough. So we do have companies that are at the, the positive end of the spectrum, and, and really it's the preponderance of companies, I'd say, are at that uh, side. In the Tangara Fund, which is the broader defined fund that we have, we do invest in the tourism sector. And since the start of COVID and even before, we were reducing our exposure to that category because we think it is very unlikely that, that the tourism sector is able to recover really even in 2021. Um, so we have reduced that quite substantially. Now, obviously, the world hopefully won't be on lockdown forever. And, and as you say, there, there will be a recovery. We just don't know what, what shape uh, it might take the, take the form of. What do you expect of the, the ASEAN region over the, the medium to long term? Let, let's ignore the, the shorter term, possibly, aspects of, of, of COVID-19 uh, and look maybe further out towards the future. What trends do you think we should be looking out for? I would say that I think that we will see um, staged recoveries. Different sectors and different countries will come back faster than, than others. Uh, I think that we'll see there is a temptation to believe that there's a, a certain amount of, of FIFO to this, that the first ones in will be the first ones out. And it certainly seems to be that, that way from China. I think tough reactions in countries seem to be positive and seem so far uh, to be holding down the numbers so those countries could react more quickly. But even within each country, we'll see 
obviously staples and essential goods services either not have a, a crisis at all or come back very, very quickly from it. Uh, I think that there is, I think it's also uh, very important to note that within our, as I said right at the very beginning, within our investment portfolio, one of the things that we believe is is very important when we invest in companies is that our companies operate in tough circumstances all the time uh, with low infrastructure and very hard to get around, uh, lots of crises. I mean, there's very rarely a year when there isn't a coup or a typhoon or a flood or something that adversely affects at least one of our countries, if not companies. And our uh, the entrepreneurs we invest in are ones that are um, battle-tested. And so I think we expect to see our companies come out of this very strong and, and very quickly in the categories where that's possible. Now, obviously, it won't be possible in all sectors. And so there are some, such as tourism, then also maybe the more discretionary sectors, such as media, such as perhaps um, department stores, that will be a slower reaction. Uh, but all the essential goods and services, I think we'll see them come out very quickly as we see a certain amount of pent-up demand once once people can move around again. And how much of a part does uh, sustainability um, take in in your investment decisions? Now, I understand you're, you're obviously signatories to the principles for responsible investment, um, but does that form a part of, of how you decide which companies to invest in? Do you look at it, the ESG side of it at all? It's a very important part, but it was really a part of what we did before we signed um, the PRI. Um, we, because we're so very long-term in what we do, and we're also, because we're consumer-focused, we, we care that companies care about the holistic view of their company. We want them to care about their reputation. Uh, we want them to look at their business being long-term sustainable, and that means minimizing or avoiding pollution wherever possible. It means taking care of their communities and their staff. It, it means really thinking they're not just in this for the short term. They are in this for the long term. And so it's really always been at the heart of what uh, Justin was doing before I arrived and when I arrived. And so when we looked at the PRI, we saw that it was worded in such a way that we could keep that approach uh, and, and take it to our companies. I, and I think that's the second part of it, is that we do see a change in the nature of companies as a whole, that companies do appreciate long-term, long-tail risk, rather, um, more than they used to. A, a perfect example of this would be if we talked to a company in either, a, a, a soft drinks company in either Philippines or Thailand, let's say 10 years ago or even six or seven years ago, and said to them, you know, people in this country are becoming obese. You should watch out because there could be a sugar tax on soft drinks anytime soon. They would have laughed us out of the office because they would have said it's ridiculous, it won't happen. Uh, and it's happened in both countries in the last three years. There has been a sugar tax on soft drinks companies. The appreciation of, of broader ESG risks is significantly higher than it has ever been in the past. And for us, we view that as an opportunity to then engage with our companies. They appreciate the risk, but very often they're not quite sure what to do about that risk. And so where possible, we, we find an opportunity to say, well, if you view this as a risk, we'll try and help 
find someone for you that can help reduce that risk going forward. For us, we believe it improves the long-term outlook for the company, that they will, they are thinking about risks, approaching them and trying to mitigate them before they arise. So it's something we want to see from our companies anyway. And if we can help them get there, then we think that's the, the correct thing to do, whether it's whether it's part of our PRI signatory status or not. For, for the last, I suppose, sorry, the best example of this is in the last year or two, we've used the fact that there's been a greater appreciation of single-use plastics being a bad thing than there'd ever been in the past. And so we're working with more of our companies to, to move them towards the circular plastic economy as we can. It, it's going to be a very, very slow process, but it's worth doing because about 25% of all ocean plastic comes from Southeast Asia, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And at some point, that is really going to blow back in the company's faces. And so we want them to appreciate that risk, and we want them to our companies to be furthest uh, along the route to, to proper sustainable behavior on, on that space as they can be. And we've been pleasantly surprised when we found um, a couple of groups, uh, very big groups, uh, household names, uh, World Wildlife Fund uh, or WWF and um, the United Nations Environmental Program, both of which are operating projects to help companies move towards um, reducing single-use plastics or disposable plastics. Um, we, our, the companies that we know didn't know these groups, didn't know the projects were in place, and we asked them if they'd like to be introduced. So many of them replied immediately saying, yes, how do we get become part of this? Because they know there's a risk there, but there's limited information on how to defray that risk. So they're very appreciative of how we engage with them and try and present solutions rather than presenting problems that they wouldn't know how to solve. You're just showing that the, the added value that, that you can add there as investors. Um, obviously, we're in an unusual situation at, at the moment, but what is it that excites you most about the portfolios? Where do you see the opportunities? Yes, I, I'd have to say that, that that's twofold. I think, firstly, what we're looking at at the moment are some of the lowest valuations we've ever seen in, in this part of the world, and particularly for consumer companies, which tend to trade at, at high multiples. Uh, we're seeing things on on low single-digit EV EBITDA multiples, very low PE multiples. Uh, and this, we're even seeing uh, some companies trading at the market cap is exactly the same as the cash they have on the books. Uh, there are some very, very low multi, uh, valuations out there. And I think that has to be the most exciting thing, that you know, we're coming from an environment where we saw very high growth last year because these companies are, are, are doing such good business. We are in a crisis currently, and there's no no avoiding that. But when we come out of that crisis, we would expect to see these companies grow into that quickly. And from current valuation levels, I think, is, is really you know, very appetizing. I think also there are the fact that we do see companies using e-commerce or e-commerce tools to, to speed up their growth. So it's not just e-commerce players or, or VTP, but also we're seeing companies, seeing emergence of fintech companies like iFast or even companies like COL that are using you know, e-commerce type of techniques in, in their standard business should also be very exciting as we see more of that going into the long term. So I think those two things together would, would be the most exciting things we see right now. 
that's been fascinating. Thank you ever so much for your time, Michael. We really appreciate it. Um, I think I've learned a lot about, about the fund, uh, and it's really useful to understand some of the stories behind the companies that you invest in. So all the way from Singapore, thank you very much. That's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.